Well, greetings once again, and once again, I just want to say what a thrill it is to be here. Thank you so much for your kind invitation and uh, for your sense of partnership that we enjoy with you um, in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Shall we pray as we come to spend some time in this part of God's word? Our Heavenly Father, we are joyful as we come to your word, uh, joyful that you would choose to speak to us rather than leave us in the dark, joyful that you care enough for us to guide us. But we're also coming with humility today, longing that your spirit would be powerfully working through your word to shape our minds and our hearts and our lives. Please give us more joy more humility, and through that, bring more honor to Jesus. Amen. In my heart, I want to be part of growing God's kingdom. But honestly, I don't know that I've got what it really takes. Ever found yourself thinking something like that? Had that thought just go through your mind? The thought process goes on. Other people, yes, I can see how they would contribute. They've got what it takes. They've got the, the, the gifts, the, the personality, the people skills, the, the training, the, the confidence. The, I can see how they could be useful. Uh, they've got what's needed. But, but, but me, well, frankly, not so much. I've lost count of the number of times that I've heard something like that expressed in some form or other. And not just heard, seen. Seen the effects of that way of thinking, the guilt, the shame, the sense of deflation, the, the, the feeling of being the weakest link in this community or something like that. And actually, it's not just individuals who can find themselves thinking like that. It can be whole churches. We plod on here at St. Ethel's or wherever it is, but we just don't have what it takes to make much of a difference, really. Other churches, yes, they've got the people, they've got the resources, the, the context, the, the energy. They've got much better soil to work in than we've got here. But do we have anything to contribute to growing the kingdom of God here? Hmm. I think even um, we reach South churches can think that way. Remember my prayer request earlier on, we, we, we don't have buildings to, to meet in like other churches do that have security at least. We're reliant on schools to open their doors to us and uh, they could close any time, of course. We don't have large swathes of older people who are going to leave us you know, huge legacies to give us financial security as a church. We don't have all singing, all dancing activity schedules that cater to everybody like some other churches do. Can churches like ours really be fruitful or effective for the kingdom? Have we got what it takes? Well, now, in that uh, Bible passage that Kath just read to us, uh, we are lifting the lid on what is possibly the most fruitful effective, kingdom-growing group of Christian believers that history has ever seen. 
a church that changed the world. It was from this one church that all three of those apostolic journeys of Paul's, those missionary journeys, began. Those missions took the gospel to Cyprus and Paphos and Pisidia and Pamphylia and Phrygia and and, and Lycaonia and Galatia and Troas and Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea and Athens and Corinth and Ephesus and, and more. And in the wake of those mission visits, churches began to spring up all over the Eastern Mediterranean and a movement began which would encompass all of Europe and eventually the world. And it all started from this tiny little church in a tiny little corner of what we would call uh, Turkey, the town of Antioch. Everything started there. The world was changed through what this one church put into motion. And the question I guess we're bound to ask is, how come? What was it about that church? What did they have for breakfast? Because to be honest, we wouldn't mind a big slice of the same thing. What was their secret? What I'm going to suggest is that we look at the story of this church in Antioch, but as we do, we're going to need to kind of freshen up our memories about what's been going on in previous chapters. Because in many ways, here at Antioch, it's the backstory that really makes the real story. Let me show you what I mean. Look at the first part of the story, where an uncomfortable new reality leads to fruitful gospel conversations. An uncomfortable reality leads to fruitful gospel conversations. Now, what's the uncomfortable reality? Well, it's referred to in verse 19 there, if you've got it stood in front of you. Those who had been scattered by the persecution. Now, that is a reference uh, back to chapter 8, verse 1, if you want to flip back a page, and you can see chapter 8, verse 1. Uh, on that day, the day Stephen was martyred, that is, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered. So the followers of Jesus in Jerusalem fled for their lives. They were forced to leave behind everything and everyone that they, they knew and loved. Where to? Well, end of verse 1 there, throughout Judea and Samaria. That's the region immediately around Jerusalem. At least that's where things went to start with. But now, back to our passage, 1119, it, it turns out that these asylum seekers ended up going further still. Let me change the scale on that map. You can still see Jerusalem and the regions of Judea and Samaria, but now they've dispersed right around to places like Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. In fact, they're now spread so wide and so thin, you can barely see them anymore. That, uh, that tinge is an awful lot lighter than it was. That's meant to express the kind of um, uh, the thinness of the coverage of those believers. Now, you take the red-hot coals out of the Jerusalem barbecue, and they're presumably going to go black, cool down, and fizzle out to nothing. End of the road for the Jesus movement. That's what you expect anyway, isn't it? As they spread so thinly as this. 
And yet, of course, that's not what happened in Judea and Samaria in chapter 8. And it's not what happens now either. Why? Well, because we're in verse 19 again now. These displaced believers couldn't keep their mouths shut. When they were spread, they spread the word. And here's the new thing. They they initially spread it among their fellow Jews, as you'd expect. But verse 20, some of those who went to Antioch started a bold new experiment. They started talking about Jesus to Greeks, those non-Jews. And then the most extraordinary thing happened. Against all the odds, you might think, at the time in the culture, at least, these non-Jews actually became interested in the Jewish Messiah that they were hearing about. In fact, not just became interested, they turned their entire lives around and started living with Jesus at the center. End of verse 21, a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. Now, as I look around uh, this morning, I don't know most of you. I know a few of you, but most of you have no idea who you are. And more importantly, I don't know where you are spiritually. So let me, uh, if I could just say something to those here, whoever you are, who are not actually yet Christian believers and are wondering what's involved in becoming a Christian. Here it is in a nutshell. It's all about those two words in verse number 21 there believed and turned. To become a Christian is to believe that Jesus, through what he's done, will secure your place with God forever. That's belief or faith. And then again, it's to turn the whole direction of your life away from yourself. Turn around and start living it For Jesus as your Lord. Let him take the driving seat. Believing and turning faith and repentance, to use different words that we others might be familiar with. And that's it, really. It is demanding. It demands our whole lives. But it's not complicated to grasp. I do hope if you are in that question-asking zone just at the moment that step of believing and turning is one you might be able to make soon it's certainly a step that many wanted to make back there in Antioch those uh, Jewish Christians those uh, migrants chatting over the back fence or whatever it was to their new Gentile neighbors they found perhaps even to their own surprise that their words bore fruit But why is that? How is it that some ordinary Joe in Antioch can hear news about some dead man they've never heard of from a different city, in a different country, from a different religious background, and that leads to them starting their entire lives afresh? How how does that even happen? Answer? Well, it's beginning of verse 21. The Lord's hand was with them. The Lord's hand was with them. That's it. That's all the explanation we get. 
But actually, it's all the explanation we need, isn't it? The Lord's hand was with them. Of course, that was how it was always going to be, wasn't it? Right back at the start of the book, the risen Jesus stood before the twelve and made a prophecy. Remember it? Some of you will be familiar with it. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. It wasn't a command or a commission, be my witnesses. No, it was a prophecy. You will be my witnesses. In other words, this was how it was always going to happen. And if you're familiar with the book of Acts, you'll know how it goes. They'd spoken of Jesus in Jerusalem. That's chapters 2 to 7. They'd spoken about him in Judea and Samaria. That's chapters 8 to 10. And now they're in the regions beyond, the ends of the earth. And of course, they're being witnesses to him there. And clearly the Spirit is at work, allowing their words to land in people's hearts. Here they are, far from home, victims of the great Jerusalem persecution, and now exiles, forced migrants. Their lives ripped away from them. But that aching, painful separation from their homeland proves to be the, the very thing that God uses to grow his kingdom. Now, you and I um, like our comfort, I imagine. Um, Winston Churchill um, celebrated the achievement of Western civilization. Why? Because he said, in its soil grow freedom, comfort, and culture. When civilization reigns in any country, a wider and less harassed life is offered to the masses. That was his perspective on Western civilization and what it brought. I don't know if civilization has come to Winchester if it has, if, if there's any comfort involved in living here, I, I doubt it very much. Uh, but maybe, maybe I've got that wrong. But civilization, he was saying, means comfort. So hardly surprising that civilized people like you and me love our comfort. But here's an uncomfortable truth. God has form in using the discomfort of his people as a catalyst for growing his kingdom. That's the truth of it. The gospel seems to grow most vigorously in the soil of pain and persecution and suffering. Jesus himself set us up for the, that reality. Uh, do you remember those words of his? They will lay their hands on you and persecute you. They will, this will be your opportunity to witness. Luke 21 verse 12. And it has proved to be so throughout Acts and, in fact, throughout history. The wonderful, wonderful Elizabeth Elliot buried two husbands. One murdered by the tribe he was seeking to reach with the gospel. One taken by cancer after just four years of marriage. What a horrific sequence of events for Elizabeth Elliot to go through. Talk about being removed from comfort. And yet what did she do? She took those experiences and wrote about them and spoke about them on radio over years and years. 
Faith does not eliminate questions, she used to say, but faith knows where to take them. That was her experience, in fact, her challenge for others. If she'd never been through what she went through, she might never have published a word or spoken a word publicly. But she did. And as she spoke and she wrote, she inspired thousands, perhaps millions, to take the claims of Christ on their lives seriously and start sharing them with others too. One of those thousands or millions, I might say, was me. Her books about her first husband, Jim, were some of the most clarifying and shaping things that I read as a young man. And in everything the Lord's um, chosen to do um, in me and through me since then, including the part I've played at Christchurch Southampton and in Reach South Church Plants, it's the words of that martyr written by a martyr's wife that have continued to echo in my mind over those years. As I say, I'm just one of many. An uncomfortable reality leading to fruitful conversations about the gospel. How do we respond to inconvenience and discomfort and suffering? With grim silence? Going into our shells? Total focus just on on, on self-preservation, survival? Or with that hard step, harder still than what we've been going through, of allowing others into our lives so they can hear what we're clinging on to in our pain, who we're clinging on to. Have I got what it takes to be useful to the kingdom? Well, here, all it seems to take is a big shove out of a comfortable life. So there's a great challenge there. What will you and I do when the day of discomfort comes to us? I'm sure it's come to some of us here long since. (laughs) An uncomfortable reality leads to fruitful gospel conversations. But look on now to the next episode. This is verses 22 to 24. And it's where a, a reformed mindset inspires warm gospel encouragement. Now, something big has happened um, in chapters 10 and 11 of Acts. What is it? Well, uh, put it this way, if this business of speaking the gospel to Greeks and them actually responding had happened in, say, um, Acts chapter 6 or thereabouts, I'm pretty sure I know how these verses would have read. Verse 22, uh, let me read the version of these verses that that would have been, I think, the case uh, had they been uh, written uh, back in a, a slightly a, a previous um, time. Um, so verse 22, news of this reached the church in Jerusalem and uh, they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw these gospel pearls being cast before the swine of the Gentiles, 
when he saw the disgrace of Gentiles accepting Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, without even first becoming Jews, he was outraged and rebuked them sharply for this offensive behavior and ordered that it be stopped without delay. Not sure if that's the same as your version. I'm not sure what version of the Bible you use here, but that would have been the expected response, wouldn't it? Something like that. I mean, yes, at the birth of Jesus, Simeon had recognized in him a light for the Gentiles. But at that stage, there was still a, a blindness to what that should look like in practice. God's Messiah was for God's people, the Jews. Peter and Cornelius put an end to that way of thinking, didn't they? That sequence of visions and divine revelations, that kind of Pentecost 2.0 experience, it changed everything. And now there's a new recognition of the, the breadth of God's welcome. And the gospel is for everybody, they realize. Look at the verse just before our passage today, verse 18. Verse 18, when they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, so then, even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Do you see how the mindset has changed? And so now when, when Barnabas comes, he doesn't come to point the finger. He comes to bring encouragement Barnabas is true to his name, the son of encouragement. That's what Barnabas means. Did what? Verse 23. He, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Isn't that interesting that what brought this mass response to Jesus was one person just being encouraging, encouraging them specifically to cling on to Jesus wholeheartedly, to be faithful, true to him. And as they did that, and presumably kept speaking as they had been, people looked at them and wanted what they had. They were brought to the Lord, says in numbers. Such an important reminder, this, isn't it, about what's involved in the gospel going forward. One of the um, effects of this terrible war in Ukraine that we've all been seeing develop on our news screens and so on is that we've all been reminded a bit about what it takes to fight a war. When an army makes advances against the enemy, it's not just about the people on the front line, is it? We've been reminded about the importance of supply lines and, and logistics and, and, and training and equipment and motivation and rotation and, and so on. When the front line advances just 100 meters, that is testimony to, to a huge operation. So why would it be any different when the front line of the kingdom goes forward? Why do we insist that the only contributors are those evangelists at the front who are saying the words and good at doing that kind of part of the operation? Now, that the likely reality is that those who open their mouths 
got to that point from a whole sequence of other things going on around them, a comment they heard in, in, in their home group, or, or the way somebody in their prayer triplet prayed for them, or some testimony to God's grace that they've heard about at the church prayer meeting, or the example of some older Christian that they know, or, or, or a chivy they've had for some Christian friend, or maybe even a sermon. <clears throat> you remember why Christians meet together week by week. Hebrews 10 verse 25 talks about not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other and all the more as you see the day approaching. When you and I, when we get serious about using coffee time after church, or other similar contexts when we, when we bump into each other in the week elsewhere. We get serious about that to get speaking into each other's lives and, and pointing each other towards Jesus, establishing each other in faith. Well, that is a good work in itself, isn't it? That, that, that's love in action. But it might well be more. It might well prove to be the kind of work in the supply lines which in time bears fruit in the front line of the kingdom going forward. Verse 24, a great number of people were brought to the Lord. <clears throat> Do you have what it takes to be useful to the advance of the kingdom? Well, let me put it this way. Do you share this mindset of Barnabas? That Jesus is for everyone. And do you share the commitment of Barnabas to encourage those around you to hold fast to Christ? Well, then you have, you have your answer. And so we come to the third thing, which contributed to gospel fruitfulness in Antioch. A surprising appointment releases fresh gospel gifts. Now, here's the other thing about Barnabas. He's self-aware. He knows when he needs help. Uh, if this new outpost of Christianity, chock full as it is of new converts with no background at all in the Bible, if, if this church is to get established, he knows he can't do it alone. And you can almost uh, follow his thought process, can't you? If you put yourself into that situation, what do I need? Well, I, I need someone who knows his Bible inside out and um, who knows how it points to Jesus and um, preferably has a bit of a passion for the Gentile world because that's our context here. Oh, who could fulfill that? Well, the Bible knowledge bit, I mean, ideally, <laughs> you want a Pharisee or someone like that who really knows their Bible, but obviously that's not going to work in pointing people towards Jesus. No, you need someone who's a Pharisee, but also pointing people towards Jesus. And, and, and also, well, for the Gentile world, I mean, hang on a sec. Am I being crazy? Or could this actually work? Quick look on Google Maps or whatever he had back then. And yes, memory does serve him well. Well, if it does, uh, just around the corner from Antioch is Tarsus. And Tarsus is home to someone who, now that I think about it, could be made for this job. 
Verse 25, Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. Now, we were introduced to Saul in chapter 9. He was a Pharisee. He was known as a great persecutor of Christians. And therefore, in some ways, as I say, a pretty surprising choice, except, of course, that he turned out to be the bad boy made good. Met Jesus in a vision, had his whole life turned around, called to follow Jesus, and commissioned to lead the work in reaching the Gentile world. Amazing story. And so Barnabas goes looking for this Bible literate, Jesus and Gentile world passionate man, Saul. And Saul comes, rolls up his sleeves, as it were, and gets to work. Back to verse 26. For a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. And this is what the church needs, isn't it? If it's to get established as a church, and indeed if it's to be effective in advancing the gospel, they need to get to know the Bible well, to, to, to understand the story of God's dealings with humanity thus far, what he's doing in the world now, what lies ahead. They need teaching. Now, let's be clear, that doesn't mean they don't need the Spirit. Um, in fact, of course, the Bible is one of the great works of the Spirit. But this idea of word and spirit, you may have come across this idea, that, that they are opposed to each other. That, that idea does seem to linger on, doesn't it, in the Christian world? A while back, I heard about a student in our patch in Southampton he was at a local charismatic church, and he asked the question, is it true that Christ Church Southampton doesn't believe in the Holy Spirit? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> where does that come from? Now, of course, I know where that comes from, and probably so do you. In large parts of the Christian world, the Spirit is primarily associated with, what, spontaneity? informality, dramatic things, weirdness, highly emotional music, and, and so on. Things that don't particularly describe our ministry at Christchurch. But really, because we're not into that kind of way of doing things, we don't believe in the Spirit. Now, happily, in that case, his pastor was at hand, and his pastor was able to reach for a book on his bookshelf on the Holy Spirit, called Breath of Life, written by me, and uh, was able to proceed to uh, quote from it until the student was satisfied. Oh, okay then, I got it. But it's true that this, this idea still seems to persist in the, in, the, in the wider Christian world, that if a church is known to be serious about teaching, it probably won't be serious about the Holy Spirit. Let's be clear here. If the Spirit were not at work among you here at Redeemer, you would not even be a church. You'd not even be a Christian. We need the Spirit to bring new life and spiritual fruit and revelation and direction and gifts to serve the church and, and courage to speak and assurance of what lies ahead and so much more. No Spirit, no church. 
But as I say, if a church is to be established, it needs to be just dripping with teaching from the sword of the Spirit, the Bible. Bible teaching, and then Bible learning, and then Bible changing. Now imagine you're all on board with that. Part of the shared ethos of Reach South Churches is that when we do meet Sunday by Sunday or midweek or wherever it is, we spend time getting to grips with God's Word, the Bible, on its own terms. Because we believe that is how God establishes churches. Actually, it's interesting. I don't think it's a coincidence that the Christians in Antioch aren't described as a church until verse 26. That is, until they've got gospeling and encouraging and teaching going on among them. Just an interesting thought there. And surprising appointment leads to fresh gospel gifts, specifically the gift of teaching to give backbone to this church. So what is the fruit of all this? Where does it all go? Where does it, where, where does it all land? Well, to start with, in God's goodness, by the work of God's spirit, it produces a beautiful church. This church, as we've already seen, is marked by a beautiful diversity. It embraces the unlikeliest of people, even Greeks. Yes, their lives will need to change. That, that turning is going to involve dramatic change of lifestyle and priorities and decision-making for, for some people. But a faith and repentance, believing and turning, they're genuinely part of those lives. There's space in the church for them. And it's marked by a beautiful identity. How were these people seen by the people of Antioch? Jews were a thing. Pagans were a thing. But these guys seem to be a mixture of both. What, what, what tag should we give them? Well, how about this? If there's one uh, name on all their lips, it seems to be the name of this man, Jesus Christ. So why not just call them the Christ people? And it's stuck. Verse 26, just the end there. The disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. And then they display a beautiful generosity. In that last paragraph, God gives the Antioch church prior warning of major food shortages which will affect the whole region. Verse 28, Agabus, through the Spirit, predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. But what's interesting is their response. What do they prioritize? Looking after number one, saving up all their cash to make sure they're provided for. That would have been a sensible thing to do, wouldn't it? But no, they, they each actually dig into their pockets as far as they can to support believers back in the heartland of Judea. Verse 30, this they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. What a beautiful church this is becoming. And of course, what a fruitful mission they're now ready to embark on in the series of missionary projects that follow. You know, Antioch um, is an inspiration for those of us who are part of Reach South. That vision 
of reaching out to people, building them up in the faith. But they're not just growing fat as a church, building our own little empires, but sending people out to start new churches wherever we can. That, that is in our DNA as a partnership. Yes, others may pursue church growth. We don't. We pursue church shrinkage. We deliberately send people away from our churches to start new ministries, new churches, somewhere else. Because by that, we are showing to ourselves and everybody else that we're prioritizing building the kingdom over building our churches. Just what we do. That's what starting Trinity Church Salisbury 18 months ago was all about. That's what Cornerstone was about. That's what Redeemer Winchester was all about. But we didn't think of that. We got it from Antioch. Antioch is, as I say, an inspiration for us as Reach South. But I trust it's an inspiration to each one of us individually as well. Have you got what it takes? to be useful in advancing the kingdom? It turns out it's not just personality and skills. It's about how we respond to discomfort, how we encourage each other, how we look to be built up in the faith. How about we focus our thoughts there and leave the rest to God? Just a moment of quiet to ponder some of those thoughts, and then I'll lead us in prayer.